The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Nevertheless, there are distinctives. And if you had the Gospels course, I doubt, don't doubt that uh, Dr. McCartney encouraged you to think in terms of the distinctives. What I want to do above and beyond saying uh, a few uh, obvious things like, well, Matthew is interested in the, uh, uh, the ministry to the Jews and the issue of the rejection by Jews and writing to Jews and Jewish Christians. There's also some, some distinctive ways in which, I think, the individual Gospels approach their own writing of history. Um, well, before I get to that, let me, let me say a bit about the historical critical tradition and, and its problems. Okay, and then positively about the gospel writer's approach. First of all, one of the problems, and if you want, before this would really be as almost a parenthesis here. One of the issues is the miraculous, right? That has troubled the whole thing because the historical critical tradition has been anti-miraculous. Sometimes dogmatically anti-miraculous is saying it just can't happen. Nowadays, I think some of the people are, are more iffy about that. Probably there are still people who are still very materialistic, basically. It's mass, energy, and motion, and that's it. So any talk about you know, the supernatural is bogus. There are, probably, there are people out there like that. Many of the people, it's not that way. But you can get pulled into it. How? Because scholarship is in the business of explaining. And part of the explanation is historical explanation. How did this event come about? What are its precursors in time? What are its products in time? How did this account of the event come about? And in that process of explaining, to say God did it is no explanation at all. That will not, you cannot write an article, you cannot publish an article <laughs> in which you said, my explanation of this miracle is God did it. Right? That is totally uninteresting. Even if it's true, it is uninteresting. Because explanation means, practically, explanation in a continuous cause-effect sequence. If that's so, the supernaturalist is already at a disadvantage. The scholarly world is set up in such a way that you can't write. <laughs> right? And it's not even interesting to write to other supernaturalists because it's so... And because there's nothing to say, right? If, if the explanation is, God spoke to Moses, and that's it, right? That's why Moses wrote what he did. So what? You know, what can you do? What can you? But if there is this big explanation of JEDP, right? That's an explanation, right? That counts even if it's a false explanation. At least it's an explanation. <laughs> now, do you see what I'm getting at? That I think it is easy for evangelicals if you're interacting with the scholarly world to be sucked in gradually, it may be over a period of time, because, in effect, that's the, the, the scholarly world has defined, has defined the territory in a certain respect. 
And there's no doubt that sometimes one can give an a, a, a partial explanation in terms of imminent causality. For instance, Luke, you know, it looks like he did research. It looks like, to me, he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. I mean, he doesn't say that in so many words, but he mentions twice that she kept all these things and pondering them in her heart. Uh, I think that's a little bit of a hint that he, and when he did the Acts, it's clear that he was with Paul in Jerusalem for a while, you know, when Paul went there. And if he was already in the process of gathering material for his gospel, who else better to go and interview than Mary, right? I would have done it if I were he. <laughs> yeah, I could just see, right? It looks like that. You know, he did investigation. Well, what am I doing? You see, I'm giving an explanation of how Luke came to write these infancy narratives that we find in Luke 1 and 2, right? It's a plausible explanation. Probably true, right? Rather than that God dictated the thing to him. Sometimes we can give such explanations. But the point is, there comes times when you simply can't because it's supernatural, right? God used sort of normal means with Luke. Well, what do you do with the book of Revelation, right? You say, well, he used this, yours, yours, and he used this thing. Uh, I don't think so. I think he had a vision, right? And that's out of your control. <laughs> so, so the point then is, you see, the same thing comes to bear with, with the Gospels, right? that the world of scholarship without knowing it has, has sort of defined the thing in terms of you've got no scholarly work to do if you just say God did it. And that, I don't know how we deal with that other than to, to sort of call the bluff and say, well, that's, that's, your, that's the problem, right? And, and that ought not to hinder us from saying what, what really we think happened. And to be unembarrassing, unembarrassed about saying it's supernatural, we can't explain it, tough, right, of saying to anybody who wants this kind of imminent explanation, you know. Okay, so that's the miraculous, that's point one. Point two is the teaching of Jesus. And linguistic theory, at least when it's got sanity to it, shows that inevitably when we're dealing with teaching, we ask about author meaning. Among other things, you know, if you've taken hermeneutics, it's textual meaning too, but textual meaning is not isolated from asking what do we know about the author? But then we are confronted with the issue of messianic self-consciousness. And years ago, Stonehouse did a marvelous job in his book on the self-disclosure of Jesus of, of uh, going in and saying the big problem with modern New Testament scholarship is this issue. This issue determines everything else. What do you think of the self-consciousness of Jesus? And that the way you fall out on that I mean, it's like, who do men say that I am? You know, it's the same issue, right? It's just a, except addressed to the modern scholar. How you fall out on that is going to make, you know, the rest of the dominoes fall in the various directions. Self-disclosure of Jesus, not irrelevant despite the passage of decades and decades. Uh, so, if you're confronted with the possibility, and I think the reality of a messianic self-consciousness, that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, not just a few scattered messianic references here and there, then that must exercise a decisive influence on interpreting any particular words of Jesus. Authorial meaning, basically, is what I'm saying, right? That means that liberalism, modernism, all kinds of reductionistic views of Jesus will regularly, you might all 
you might virtually say, will always be led astray because it has failed at the fundamental point. Right? If you misestimate the author, you're going to misinterpret his meaning, which doesn't mean there won't be fragments of truth, right? But, but you can see how, I mean, this is not neutral scholarship, right? <laughs> because you can't be neutral, right? You have to decide whether you admit it or not. You have to decide who Jesus is. Luke 5, 14, just give you an example. And this will affect your parable interpretation and obviously just about everything else, right? Luke 5, 14, then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. That's not exactly what many of us would have expected Jesus to do. What's the significance of that? Is Jesus just a man saying what any good rabbi might say of keep the law, right? And, and if that's what it is, why does he say don't tell anyone? I mean... You know, there's some strange thing about that. Why does he say, as a testimony to them? Right? Not just go yourself. You're right. Any rabbi might have said, well, go and show yourself to the priest. That's the next thing after you cleanse. Right? You, you get the priest to authenticate it. That's the law of Moses. As a testimony to them. Huh? <laughs> right? See, I think the messianic self-consciousness is peeping through there. Jesus already has a ministry ahead of him. Jesus is making a statement, even though it's somewhat mystifying at this level, right, and at this point in the ministry. So, you know, even something like that, there's, there's depths to it, right? You, you think, well, it all depends on what you think Jesus is doing. If Jesus is the Messiah, consciously, which I think Luke intends us to understand from, if nothing else, from the baptism as well as from the, you know, the story of his childhood must be about my father's business. If Jesus is the Messiah consciously, then there's a theology of the fulfillment that you bring to something like this. Okay. Well, now, that was parenthetical because it's really not variations in history writing so much as the historical critical thing and how we distance ourselves from that. Well, yeah, I think the sacrifices for cleansing, of course, are also pointing forward to Christ. But, but I'm thinking of even at a more at a sort of more elementary level, just this area of don't tell them or don't tell anyone and the, the testimony that, that, that those raise all kinds of questions because of, the, of um, what they do. And that question leads out into a larger theology. That's all the point I wanted to make. Okay, now the variation part. Variations, that is, between the evangelists. If you want vast oversimplification, Luke proclaims in his prologue that he's writing pretty straight history. Not necessarily in a modern mold, certainly not in a positivistic mold, but in the sense of the ancient Hellenistic history writing, who's writing the facts all right, and it's going to get his facts straight if he's good, but also for edification. There were lessons, but of course for Luke, of course, it's much, not just moral lessons, right? But it's for the sake of understanding the fulfillment. Matthew and all the gospel writers are concerned with fulfillment. Matthew, it is, as it were, Jewish history writing. Whereas Luke starts at the prologue, which is like Josephus' introduction to the Jewish war. What does Matthew start? Genealogy, chronicles. It's this uh, sort of patriarchal 
uh, Israelite, you know, generation by generation oriented history, family, right, tribal oriented history that is evoked by the opening genealogy. And of course there are other things, right, some of these little details where I think he says, among other things, that I'm going to sometimes telescope, that is I'm going to compress because he compresses the genealogy itself by leaving out some of the names of the kings of Judah. And when you come to the narrative of Jairus' daughter, Matthew's story is shorter than either Mark or Luke. And in reading it casually, you could think there's only one uh, stage of the thing where Jairus comes and says, my daughter's died. Well, you know from the others that it's actually a two-stage thing, that she's very sick, and then later on they hear she's died, you know. And people struggle about a harmonistic problem there. You can understand, right, of did Matthew, was Matthew inerrant? Yeah, I think he was. But the point is he's announcing at the beginning of his history writing that sometimes things will be short. They will be summary. They will be brief. And so that some of the details will not necessarily all be there. And he feels... Uh, that he's ready to introduce small alterations like these spelling things for the sake of indicating, not falsifying anything historically, but he's indicating in small, subtle ways theological points. What about John? How does John begin? Prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. That is theologically rich, right? And John is determined to draw out the theological significance in terms of who Christ is. And that's the character of his writing. And Mark is, is it were, dramatic history, lots of action. Almost nothing but action, you feel, sometimes uh, there. And confrontational with evil, very much. Now, that's more in the way of emphasis. But even the style of writing history, you see, can be subtly different. Now, the other thing, we're going to be out of time. Maybe I ought to take this up last next time because it's worth thinking about is you're you know eventually going to end up writing a paper about a parable or miracle story think about application but the gospel writers standing on this side of the resurrection have not left us totally in the dark about application as if they just say here I'll throw the story at you you make of it what you will no the most obvious is Luke because he writes Acts two volume work and by writing Acts, he shows you the way in which elements of the ministry of the Jesus are continued into the era of the church, albeit in altered form, right? Christ has ascended, the Spirit is poured out. But then he says, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, implying that he is continuing to do and to teach, except in altered mode, you see. So he is indicating thereby the relevance of the Gospel of Luke for the continued existence of the church, but not as if then you take everything over straight and say, well, if Jesus healed a leper, then we've got to heal a leper. Exact imitation, but rather a sort of analogical relationship because of the ascension. Things change and remain the same both. Well, we're out of time, so think about in what way do the other gospel writers, I mean, Luke and Acts is the obvious one. I probably should have left that to you. <laughs> How do the other gospel writers encourage us to think about the application to the church?
We did not quite finish last time a discussion of uh, on part two, the whole material on the nature of the Gospels. Uh, much might be said, but eventually, of course, we have to get into the meat of, of uh, interpreting particular parables and, and miracle stories. So um, I only have, I think, a few more things to say. And I had talked about the unique strategies of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with respect to writing history. There's, uh, I think, things to be reflected on there. I finally found where I left off here. Uh, <clears throat> and the, the other thing in this area, and now I suppose you want to know where it is in the outline. We're on Roman numeral 2E. And actually, uh, 3E is where we uh, left off, and uh, uh, 3 small e. And then under E, I'm going to make a number 4. That is, um, ways in which the gospel writers indicate uh, or um, point to applications to the church. They are writing about what happened, but they expect that people will take it to heart in various ways. The difficulty and the challenge um, and the glory of it is that they are talking about another epoch of redemption. Though we've already pointed out something of the continuity of the person of Christ, um, certainly giving us grounds for a lot of uh, reflection on application now. But it becomes tricky because not everything is the same. Uh, it's not like the epistles, which are written to fundamentally the same redemptive historical situation that we are. Uh, Jesus' own words are spoken to an earlier redemptive historical situation. So how do the gospel writers help us? Well, they do help us because they are standing in our redemptive historical situation, right? They are writing after the resurrection, ascension, uh, and the pouring out of the Spirit. And certainly, at a minimum, we can expect that some of their editorial comments, as it were, will help. But if we grant that they can have, for instance, something of a particular slant about their history writing, that is actually an advantage. Uh, if we allow that they did interpretation, not to then create things that weren't there, but to interpret the significance that is already in the events, right? We talked about that. If we grant that there's interpretation, that is actually a good thing because we need help in making that transition. Well, the epistles, yes, the, the uh, letters of the New Testament give us help, to be sure, because they stand with us. But we would like to have that help with respect to understanding the actual details of Jesus' life. So the gospel writers do that, but the way in which they do it may, again, be slightly different um, in the various cases. Now, for Luke, it's the easiest, right? As I pointed out at the end of the last hour, we were together, I think. Uh, for Luke, it's easy because he writes Acts. And that brings us right into our redemptive historical epic. So by studying the continuities and discontinuities as Luke lays them out, and by trying to discern what theological themes and purposes he has, we get help. 
But Luke is the only one who does that. So what do the other gospel writers do? Do they just leave it to the reader, as it were? Well, they do in the end, and Luke himself does in the end in some respects. But let me suggest that there are some things to note about the other gospels. Uh, John contains the upper room discourse, John 13 to 17, a long block of material. And in that block of material, John 16 in particular, now you can point to almost anything in some respects. Uh, you could point to John 17 and the so-called high priestly prayer and Jesus praying not only for the 12, but for those who believe in me through your word that they may all be one as we are one. So that the prayer extends directly out to us. But look at John 16 in particular, verse 25. Well, it's not only this. Uh, John 14 uh, and 16 and, well, some of 15 talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit as another counselor or another helper. It's a debate uh, just how you translate Paracletos. But the gift of the Spirit is obviously a key to the continuation of the um, presence of Christ in the present age. So this material is really largely looking forward. And people say, um, uh, John 14, verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, is usually interpreted of the second coming. And yes, there is probably that in the background, but I can't help wondering whether in the context of John's way of talking and the subsequent discussions of the Holy Spirit that Jesus isn't thinking just as much of the union with Christ that we possess through the Spirit. We are with him that way. And uh, certainly the, 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 the long discussion of the work of the Spirit um, includes that. But now... Look particularly at 1625. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Well, particularly that the one verse, the uh, 25, uh, actually after a certain background where there's a little bit of puzzlement. What does he mean by a little why? We don't understand what he's saying, verse 18. Some apprehensions uh, on the part of the disciples of, we're not really sure what this means. <laughs> and he will send the Spirit so they will understand the significance of what it means. And I cannot help wondering whether John knows himself and understands himself as one of these people who have been filled with the Spirit to understand the things of Christ. And now he's been, it's been sort of boiling around in his system, and he's something like 80 years old. We don't know how old, really, when the Gospel of John was written, but the extra-biblical later tradition thinks of it as written in his old age. Uh, and you don't really know, but it's possible then John has really digested this and that he is undertaking to bring out the significance 
certainly he is asking us to rely on the Spirit to discern the significance. But he himself is one who's been equipped by the Spirit to understand. And the writing then of the Gospel of John, well, think of John 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's, that's John's voice, first of all, and not the voice of a historical record or happening, right? So clearly, he, something has happened to John, <laughs> right? That is like this statement in uh, 1625. So uh, there's that to consider. And the way in which John organizes his discussion, there are not very many miracles in John, but the ones there are are more thoroughly discussed and expounded upon. Feeding of the 5,000, John 6, for instance, um, is one of the ones that's left, and people, some people count seven or eight miraculous signs, depending on how you count. Not very many in comparison with other Gospels. But then you have a whole chapter, the rest of John 6, discussing the theological significance of this, and Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. And uh, uh, so you've got a long uh, uh, block of material on that. And then John 9, you have a miracle where Jesus heals a man blind from birth, and a whole chapter, some of which is interaction and the uh, Pharisees' criticism, but it uh, fills out the statement, I am the light of the world. Uh, and then John 11, a miracle of raising Lazarus, I am the resurrection of the life, a whole chapter basically on that. So, so you know, just think of, you know, you've got these, uh, particularly Matthew, rather compressed things and sometimes only something like four verses uh, gives you the account of a miracle. So something has happened in John that is significantly different uh, in terms of his spacing and pace and what he's doing with these things. So that's John. Matthew, I think it's the theme of discipleship that does it, if anything does it. Remember, Matthew's got these five blocks of teaching in between the blocks of action. And the blocks of teaching are then picked up at the very end of Matthew, where in the Great Commission, Jesus commissions the disciples, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. What's everything I have commanded you? Largely, these teaching blocks. So the statement there directly asserts the continued relevance of that entire material, entire teaching material in those five blocks. Now you still have to qualify in some ways, I think, because, for instance, the Great Commission itself, apparently, if you just read everything flat, contradicts Jesus' early instruction to his disciples, don't go to anybody except the house of Israel. It's right there. <laughs> and now that's changed, do you know? And that's right built into the Great Commission along with the commandment to obey everything I've commanded you. And yet it's apparent that what he's commanded them has, has changed in certain fairly deep going ways precisely because of the resurrection and the, uh, you know, the extension to all nations. So, so I think 
that the Great Commission is a key uh, sort of fulcrum relating Jesus' earlier teaching to the continued existence of the church uh, uh, evangelistically, but you see the, the, the Great Commission isn't bare evangelism, right? If you're teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and if you're making disciples, that's making disciples is a little more robust than making converts, <laughs> right? A convert is one who you can enroll as, you know, uh, as sort of having come to your side, but the question is, what does it mean to be on your side? And that's discipleship, right? That's continuing activity of submission and obedience uh, as is defined here. So Matthew, there's really a lot uh, there when you think about it, that Matthew is endeavoring to, to um, indicate that the teaching of Jesus has continuing relevance to a disciple. If we are disciples of Christ. Now with Mark, Mark is the most difficult. Because Mark doesn't have a lot of those teaching materials, some, but much less in terms of, uh, you know, proportions. And Mark is primarily a book of action, and the action is clearly once for all action. But there are some things about it, the unbelief of the disciples, for instance, and the uh, interest in responses to uh, various people and the tensions in those responses. But the way in which Mark brings it to a, to a head, I think, one way at least, is in the ending. Because Jesus is resurrected. Now this gets controversial because Mark has three different endings. Right? Text critically, you may know of the problems there. There's a so-called long ending, which is the typical one. I've got an NIV in front of me, and it prints out the long ending as if it was a straight part of Gospel of Mark, but then right before it has a bracket, the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have this. Most uh, English texts do not include the shorter ending. There is a shorter ending uh, that also some manuscripts have, and then there is the zero ending, <laughs> uh, which breaks at 16.8. Uh, well, what do we do with that? I mean, it is, a, it is a rather complicated text-critical problem, and it may, in some respects, be the most significant text-critical problem in the whole New Testament because it involves so many verses, potentially. My own opinion, very briefly, and not as an expert in text criticism, but somebody who's looked at it, is the so-called short ending by internal evidence that is, if you read it, it is clearly secondary. It is using a vocabulary and kind of language that is, um, sounds like a second century writer. In a, uh, let me read it, a little bit of it. The short ending, not the long ending. The long ending is the one you would have in an English text, and the short ending is, is uh, much less well-known. Right? Yeah, it's that last part, you see. I mean, that's a ringing, ecclesiastical kind of sounding thing, you know. It's, it's loaded with rhetorical fullness. I like it, you know, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not scripture, I don't think, right? It's somebody later trying to, you know, summarize sort of, you know, the book of Acts and 
and so on. And, but why was it written? Because the people who wrote that, and actually most of the text critical evidence you'll see is either a manuscript has the zero ending, what I call the zero ending is, cuts off at 16.8, or it has the short ending, that one, or it has the long ending, that is 9 to 20, not the combination of the two. I think there may be some, very few late manuscripts that have both, and you know, to be safe, right, have both the short and the long ending. But that's clearly secondary, right? The short ending, because of the, you know, this, this very uh, flowery rhetoric, is, is very clearly on internal ground, secondary, and manuscript evidence is, is not that weighty either. It's very clear why it was written. It was written by people who looked at the zero ending and said, this cannot possibly be. <laughs> We've got to do something about this zero ending. Because look at what happens. You get, if the, with the zero ending, what happens is you get a, a full account of the crucifixion, okay? And the burial. And you've also had, and this is not so apparent, several predictions earlier on in Mark of various things that are going to come. You've had predictions of the coming crucifixion in particular. That Jesus will be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, that he will be um, mistreated, that he will be crucified. Every one of those predictions has come true. And the controversy in the crucifixion narrative is the controversy whether Jesus is a false prophet. The irony of the thing is, is tremendous because he's on trial for being a false prophet. And the trial itself shows he's a true prophet <laughs> because he's, you know, he's been predicting what will take place. Every one of those predictions comes true except the last one. We've still got one left if you've you know, followed through the narrative. We've got one left, namely of his resurrection. So then the women bring the spices to the tomb and they see a young man dressed in white robe says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. This is verse 6. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What has to be next? What has to be next is the meeting with the disciples in Galilee and the actual appearing of Christ, right? You're, you're hung. <laughs> this, is, this is why this is a zero ending, because uh, it seems to hang you in space, right? You're looking for the fulfillment of this last bit. You've got an announcement. You've had periodic announcements by Christ himself that, that he's going to be raised. Now you've got an angelic announcement. Well, now, you know, that's the final thing is to, you know, for him to actually meet with the disciples. So the point is that the short ending derived from the zero ending, right? Because they couldn't just leave it. Now, the long ending is more difficult to decide about because it's not nearly so obvious whether it couldn't be something that Mark wrote. But if you look at it, one of the problems is the manuscript evidence that it is uneven. And in effect, the short ending, every one of those things that has a short ending is testimony to the zero ending, you see, right? Really, because that's where that came from. So 
it's only the ones that have the long ending that are testifying in favor of the long ending. And the other thing about the long ending is it is the kind of thing that could have been written pretty well from somebody who knew the other Gospels and perhaps a bit of Acts. It's a sort of summary, which again makes one leery. If the short ending could be produced and was obviously produced by somebody who was uneasy with the zero ending, then maybe the long ending was produced by the same kind of reasoning, which leaves us with the possibilities. Number one, that the long ending may still be genuine. I don't think you can absolutely eliminate it. Number two, that the zero ending may be, there may be, some people postulate that there was an early ending, but it was somehow lost. It was cut off, and that all the extant manuscripts failed to include it, or that Mark actually ended <laughs> his gospel at 16.8. But how could you end it? But they were afraid. What an ending. <laughs> The other thing about this ending that is most paradoxical is that they didn't tell anybody. That obviously has to be qualified because somehow it got known, right? They didn't tell anybody, but eventually somebody <laughs> heard the story of what these women had experienced. So there's, there's some oddities about this 16-8, just cutting it off. I, I am one to want, I think, my opinion, and the thing that attracts me is to bite the bullet and say, that's really what Mark wanted. <laughs> and that he knows very well that people are going to feel a little bit of tension with this ending because it's an ending that's not an ending. So why does he do that? Because all the way through, there has been this issue of, is Jesus the Messiah and is he the true prophet? But in addition, there's been the issue of the unbelief of the disciples. It's stronger in Mark than in any, of the any other of the Gospels. Not that the other Gospels completely omit it, but in Mark, in the middle section especially, uh, there are these, uh, well, it's the inc incidents with the, uh, there's a, actually more than one blind man is healed. And um, then, there, and there's the feeding of the 4,000. Yes, and then a discussion of that in Mark 8. Disciples had forgotten to bring bread, 8.14, and they discussed that. And at the end of that, verse 21, he said to them, Do you still not understand? Uh, so there, there is an issue in this part of the book about whether the disciples understand. Uh, and there's some more evidence of that. Now, my point is that by the time you get to Mark 16, the effect of that ending is to leave the reader in the tension of, well, now what's going to happen? Mark could have related the meeting with Jesus with his disciples in Galilee, but I think there are two reasons why that might be omitted and some effects of that. One is that it challenges the reader. Now, I could tell you this, but what if I don't tell you? What do you think? Are you ready to believe the word of Christ and these promises yourself, right? Not just hear about people who believe or, not, or don't believe. And there's a sense spiritually in which Jesus will then meet with you. 
right? So it's not only meeting with the historic disciples once for all, but it extends out because in effect you're saying, look, there's more to the thing than is historic meeting, but you become a disciple and you are challenged to meet Jesus spiritually and then to carry the message, which the women, you see, they still are not doing at the very end of the book. Well, what's going to happen to the message, right? Is anybody going to be told? So there, there's an open-endedness to the gospel, which in effect the reader has to fill in, right? And he has to fill it in with himself, <laughs> right? Now, what, where are you in the story? So that may be, I mean, it, we, we can't know with absolute certainty, I think, because it's a tricky ending. And uh, one has to struggle over it, but precisely the struggle, I think, is part of the point. Anyway, that's my view on what's going on at the end of Mark, and that it actually helps to engage readers in the um, post-resurrection era. All right, so much then for a discussion of systematic theological concerns. And now I have, I'm not going to be able to find my notes easily on this, source criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, this is capital F, and their tension with synchronic meaning. Several points here. First, what are these things? Source criticism asks the question, what earlier written sources were used in forming the final text? That is, did Luke and Matthew use Mark, the so-called two-source hypothesis, or Mark and, uh, or, no, sorry, the Mark and hypothesis, but now it's come to be more complicated than that. The classical theory, as you may know, is two sources, Mark and Q, and Q being a saying source, but because no one can control that, Q, for many people, ends up as being a symbol for whatever is shared by Mark, Matthew and Luke, regardless of how they got it. And there, I think there are a good many scholars who wonder whether Q is a single document, right? Well, although the simplest hypothesis is that it was, a, that is a single document. So there's two sources, and then Streeter developed that with four sources, because Matthew had his own distinct infancy source, for instance, and Luke did. So uh, there's these developments. But source criticism is asking all these questions. And the current most popular hypothesis is, as I've said, the two-source hypothesis, often now enhanced with a recognition that Matthew and Luke may each have had uh, a source in addition to those two. Uh, one that was peculiar to them. And I don't see it here, so let me mention very briefly. I'm not even sure whether I put it in your bibliography. There is a, an article written by E. Earl Ellis called New Directions in Form Criticism. And it's in a multi, one of these multi-author volumes. But it's one of the most um, astonishing little articles that I have seen. And the basic, the gist of it is basically to say, because Jesus traveled around during his public ministry, and because it's evident from the Gospels that there were many people who were sympathetic with his ministry who did not follow him physically everywhere. Right? There were, the 12 did, and Luke mentions a few others. But there must have been many others who did not leave their homes. 
But when he came to their city, town, then they would come out to hear him. And some of those people who came out to hear him, I mean, some were, you know, probably just curious. But some who came out to hear him may have been quite serious in not thinking that he was at least a great prophet from God and valuing his teaching. Well, what if you were one of those people? What would you do? You went back home. He left your town. But lo and behold, in the town, two towns over, you have a relative. So you send to him and say, well, you know, when Jesus comes there, uh, take notes. <laughs> Let me know what he teaches. And this kind of thing, there's every reason to believe that this kind of thing was taking place not once, but many times. Because, you know, people would have relatives and friends and so on in other towns. And so what you end up with is hundreds of fragmentary pieces, written pieces. The point is, this is not all oral because you wouldn't want to, you, you'd want to have a more permanent record of something if you hadn't heard it yourself. Hundreds of written pieces circulating before there was any gospel as we know it. And that is a source critic's nightmare because you can't possibly know. Right? You can't possibly reconstruct it. It's just too complicated. And I think there's something, and maybe it's in Guthrie. I forget. It's in somebody who's you know, a prominent evangelical scholar who goes through all this stuff on source criticism and says, well, perhaps the simplest hypothesis is the best. So he ends up with a two-source hypothesis. The simplest hypothesis is not only not the best, but certainly wrong. <laughs> in my opinion, it's just radically wrong because of what Ellis has pointed out, that you've got more documents than just two. And when you've got not two, but not maybe 10, but hundreds even, then nobody can control what was going on. You simply cannot reconstruct an earlier stage with any confidence. You're left with the four Gospels and you say, well, somehow, <laughs> uh, in the Lord's providence, right? If you're a Christian believer, this isn't a problem because you say, you know, well, however God did it, right? But it, it, you can't, through human ingenuity, possibly reconstruct a thing that's that complicated. Some of that may actually be chronological order, you know, and even though the gospel writers don't claim to have everything chronologically. And some of it may be because in longer, in settings where there's an opportunity to tell the story at more length, the story of Christ, that there developed something of a standard way of telling it, that is, even in terms of order. I don't know. But the, um, yeah, I, I looked at some of the detailed data on the synoptic problem, and there were times when Luke, and it was one of these transition pieces, but it was at the same spot that Mark had it, one of the summary statements, I believe at the end of, of Luke. And I looked at Luke and I looked at Mark and I said, they're basically saying the same thing, a, a summary of Jesus' ministry. So if Luke was using Mark, if he had Mark before him, it was as if he sat down, he said, now I'm gonna say the same thing that Mark said, but I'm gonna say it with a completely different wording. It's as if you deliberately have to change when you had every reason to just copy it, <laughs> if you're gonna say the same thing. So that, that really shook my confidence that, that Luke used Mark. I thought, I can't understand what he was doing if he was using Mark. So, you know, the simple accounts of saying, well, there's a lot of similarities. Yes, there are a lot of similarities, but at the detailed level, it becomes 
a massively complex thing where I just sort of shake my head and say, I don't know what's going on. And I'm not at all sure then that one directly used another. Now, some people say, well, Luke used Mark, but actually he used a proto-Mark, an Ur-Mark, before Mark had it in his finalized form. Well, that's nice. It may be so, but if that's so, it, it, it's kind of untestable because you can save yourself from any problem whatsoever <laughs> by postulating an Ur-Mark that does just what you want it to do. So it's one of these things where I think there's much uncertainty. Okay, anyway, that's sort of parenthetical comment because I want to talk about form criticism too. Form criticism, that's point two, A, asks what structural forms of discourse were used at pre-written or oral stages in the transmission? And from what Zitzim Leben, that is life setting, did each form originate? That is, did it originate in, a, what I say, a pastoral hortatory context or a moral context as a more example for Christians or apologetic context as proves that Jesus' claims are true? What sort of context was this used in and, and for what reasons? And then, what changes did each unit undergo in the course of oral transmission? That's the questions that are raised uh, by form critics. And in order to get traction, much traction on that, most of them do assume the two-document hypothesis, two-source hypothesis. And B, in the case of the Gospels, the miracle stories, parables, uh, uh, pronouncement stories, wisdom sayings, legends, all of those are distinct forms. And third, then, redaction criticism asks, how did the final editor or redactor shape his immediate sources? And in particular, what theological emphases in the German word tendenz does the redactor show? And what do we learn about him from the changes that he introduced into his sources? So if, for, for instance, Matthew and Luke, you compare them line by line for Mark, you have to assume, of course, again, that they used Mark, which I'm not confident is the case, may be the case. And for Mark and John, you can really go to town because nobody has the sources. So you speculatively try to reconstruct sources that they used and then figure out what changes they used. You could see that you can play games for a long time uh, with that. Okay, fourth is in, by way of evaluation. And some of you have heard some of this in the hermeneutics course. But uh, the development of these tools, unfortunately, was afflicted with anti-supernaturalist and historicist biases, meaning that the people who developed the tools did so with the underlying assumption that miracles, there must be some natural base underlying it, and that the miracles are a product of the storytelling rather than a product of reality. So it's anti-supernatural in terms of assuming that when we've got a miraculous, it's not because it literally happened. And that's an assumption. And then historicist presuppositions, that is, that any interpretation, it's this thing, the, all interpretation is false, falsification virtually, that it's added on top of bare events. And so it has to be peeled off to get back to what is the real thing. So both of those assumptions are bad, and they influence the development, but, point five, these things, I think, in principle, you can say, have some limited positive value. Uh, and I've listed the reasons. They, a, they are theoretically legitimate as attempts to answer human curiosity. In other words, we have questions in our minds. 
What was it like in the early church before the four Gospels were written? You know, what did the apostles teach? What did other people say about the life of Christ? Those are nice questions, interesting questions, if we could answer them. <laughs> there's nothing the matter with asking them, right, provided that there's not built in the, uh, you know, bad assumptions of uh, anti-supernaturalism and historicism. But 5b, there are problems of speculation, right? Because, and particularly if Ellis is right about this hundreds, perhaps, of fragments, that it's just too speculative to try to figure out exactly what went on. And anytime you speculate, not only may you be wrong, but because you haven't got a lot of hard data, or you, you are sort of reading the data with third-degree methods, that is, you're, put, you're pressuring it in ways that it didn't expect to be pressured, and you may squeeze out of it more information, but you may squeeze out of it false things, too. That is, that it didn't intend to say, but you, you know, infer. So, and, and that gives you more space to bring in questionable assumptions. Not only questionable theological assumptions, but questionable assumptions about transmission of stories orally. And a fellow named Baird did a piece of research where he took some later material, second century and so on, where you could pretty well see what was, but because there was an absolute dating, you could see what was later, later and what was earlier. And tried to see whether stories were regularly expanded or whether the, things were omitted from them, you know, whether there was a regular tendency in the course of transmission. His conclusion was, astonishingly, not much. He could find things going every which way in terms of how people transmitted these things, and it, it resulted, I mean, he's a sort of mainstream critical scholar, but it resulted in a loss of confidence on his part <laughs> in, in, in the use of these critical tools because he felt, you know, we've made assumptions that the, you know, the longer account is always later, right, and so on. He says that really doesn't, isn't true. So, uh, third area C, apologetic use for those who do not believe in the divine authority of Scripture. It still may be useful at some points to defend its historical accuracy, and then uh, you could get into various questions of, of their sources. Uh, 5D, in reconstruction of the New Testament environment. Obviously, that's of indirect relevance for our understanding of, of the New Testament as a whole to understand how the early church developed and so on. Six, and this is the final thing, and it's not new to you who've had hermeneutics with me. The fundamental issue is, is the meaning of a text what it says or the history of its origin? And, and my frustration with all this is that there's not much positive payoff other than this indirect stuff that I've indicated, not much positive payoff in actually understanding the text. And C.S. Lewis has something of the same reaction of saying, you know, that people did uh, source critical work on his writings and, you know, speculating as to where he got his ideas. And he said the, the, the score of those things was zero, right? <laughs> and nobody got it right. And, of course, he's a living author who's still there to, to tell you whether you got it right or not. So um, I don't deny that sometimes people could get it right, right. But even then, you see, I think an author wants to be, be uh, treated in his own terms and not simply read um, against the background of his, his uh, sources. 
suppose that Luke did use Mark, for instance, then it's significant those times where he changes Mark, you know, adds a phrase or tips the thing a little different way, and you say, well, that reveals something about him. But what about the times when he doesn't change Mark? Those are just as revealing because he's, he's committing himself to saying the same thing as Mark, and so that's significant too. You see, you read Luke, you read the product, and you don't, unless you're a redaction critic, you don't read him line by line comparing with Mark. You read him as a story. You read him as, a, as for what he says and not for his sources. So basically, even though the material you're going to be getting into, there is a lot of speculation about it, right? Uh, both the parables and the miracle stories try to reconstruct things and, and so on. I would say feel free, and uh, most of you will, I know, Feel free to take the final text as you got it and to devote your energy to that, you see. It still is interesting to see, for instance, that on certain in certain cases, Luke, uh, to compare what Luke says with Mark and Matthew, whether or not he used them, it's still interesting to see, sometimes giving a little different slant. Okay, notice that, and you can learn something about Luke but it doesn't much matter whether he used sources or not. The, the differences are there to be observed. So I'm not saying, you know, that sort of one buries one's head in the sand about, about parallels in other Gospels, but it really doesn't strongly depend on source theories, in my opinion. It, it depends on reading, not only Luke, but Luke in comparison with Mark and, and Matthew as complete documents. All right, now we're ready, I think, finally. Thank you for bearing with me. We're ready to um, consider the parables themselves. And we will have a section on miracles, too, later on. And we're going to begin, this is Roman numeral three. We're going to begin with an example to whet your appetite. And to raise a lot of questions, I may be as well. If you want to know where we're going, though, if I had to put it in a nutshell, I would say this, that the parables describe what happens when Jesus comes or when the kingdom comes, but the kingdom is closely related to the person of Christ. Luke 13, we're going to look at as an example. Luke 13, 18 to 21. Well, it's about time for our break. So let's read this, and then we'll take the break and then discuss it. Luke 13, 18, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again, he asked, well, I'm taking two parables. What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Well, we're coming back to order. A couple of questions came up during the... Uh, the break, um, and uh, one of them was about um, reflecting on ancient Near Eastern culture and uh, people's ability to, to memorize and to remember things. Um, I had stressed that there may have been written documents, and I think that's right, the Ellis thing. But in addition to that, not all cultures work the same way in terms of a transmission of stories, and uh, in, you know, I have. The fact is that the synoptic reflections 
are a product of modern European culture and show a certain amount of cultural <laughs> uh, monolithic, uh, you know, unawareness of the possibility that maybe people living in a vastly different culture could act differently. And, I, you know, I've heard stories, and I guess Kenneth, Kenneth, it's Kenneth Bailey who, who uh, looked at modern Near Eastern cultures that supposedly have not changed very much, and I can believe that. It's a little bit iffy because you never know over a period of 20 centuries that there might be some profound changes that, that um, you couldn't reckon with. But it, not only from him, but I've heard other sources say that, um, that there are people in some cultures that can tell almost verbatim, they can tell conversations that they heard years ago, the entire conversation. You know, you, you just, we can't conceive of that. You know, it's just, and especially with the television and radio blaring on <laughs> the way they do, we're saturated with words. And I think it tends to, you know, be an overload on the system that we can't memorize anything because we're, we're just uh, over capacity. So, um, so that is a possibility, you know, and you just, it, that even, we're talking about ordinary human nature, but, but if, as John hints at, that you've got a spirit, a gift of the spirit who will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you, you know, does that mean something even miraculously heightened memory so you just, you know, these things you can't reckon with. And I think the, the you know, the, the way that the synoptic speculations have gone has been a sort of least common denominator of let's make enough assumptions so that we can get somewhere with our theories. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're just assumptions. That's the thing. Now, the other question was about are we then to believe that the Gospels are presenting something very close to the ipsissima verba of Jesus. That's a tricky one because I think there are some indications of the care of the gospel writers. For instance, uh, if you compare the different the synoptic gospels, it is regularly the case that when they are um, presenting the words of Jesus, the match between different synoptics will be much closer than when they are just telling a story of events not verbal events any longer, if you see what I mean, right? But when they are quoting somebody else's words, then the three synoptics tend to line up, on the average, a lot better than when they are just reporting events. Now that, you know, again raises questions about, well, if, the, if one was using another, you know, why would he do that kind of thing, right? Why shouldn't it be about the same match? For a lazy copyist, I would think it would be about the same. Uh, but, so that also gives one pause, and it's understandable, again, even on human terms, apart from these special movement of the spirit. It's understandable, simply in human terms, that, that people, when they told the events, retold them, would, to a certain extent, tell them from their own point of view, and select the words which seemed appropriate to them, whereas, when Jesus is speaking, the words are already given to them. One fly in the ointment, of course, is that many of Jesus' sermons were probably in Aramaic. Galilee was trilingual at the time. The best investigations seem to show Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. So a lot of, uh, you know, the people like centurions and so on, there was a lot of, of trade and things so that uh, it was not a sort of 
what should I say, a closed culture. And so people inevitably knew a certain amount of Greek. Although you would think that when Jesus was speaking to fellow Jews, he would speak in the language of the heart, which, you know, the language of the home would be Aramaic, and it would be more in a sort of cosmopolitan and trading situations. So it seems likely, but you can't prove it. You can't prove that Jesus didn't speak some or maybe even a good many of his sermons in Greek. I suspect it was Aramaic, the language of the heart. It's interesting that Bar Kokhba, and this was about 135, he claimed to be you know, one of these Messianic pretenders. We have correspondence between him and some of his supporters before the Romans finally wiped him out, written in Hebrew, which, you know, this is not, he's not just a scribe who's using a dead language to honor it. <laughs> it's military stuff. So, so really there was, looks like uh, to a certain extent, at least, trilingualism. But uh, what we have in the Gospels, in a good many cases, is probably a Greek translation of the original. But of course, it's an inspired translation, you see. But does that again mean that you can expect it to be pretty much word for word? Well, then what about the Sermon on the Mount? Take something like 15 minutes to read out loud. Do you think Jesus preached for 15 minutes? I doubt it. So it's something of a condensation. And the question is, how do you condense and remain accurate? I think the minimum we've got to say is the kind of thing that you would say if you went into court to testify concerning a certain conversation which you had been a party to, right? And they put you on the stand and say, did John, what did John say at this point in the conversation? You say, he said that uh, if so-and-so didn't behave, he was mad enough to kill him, all right? And uh, then the lawyer says, were those his exact words? Because they'll always try to pin you down, <laughs> right? And you say, no, but that's what he said, you see? And Augustine knew that, too. He wrote a book. Augustine wrote a book called, uh, what is it? Oh, I can't give you the exact title. But anyway, it's basically a harmony of the four Gospels. And Augustine knew about all these harmonistic problems. He was not a dummy. And he, he argued again and again that the Gospels were consistent with one another. In other words, inerrancy is not a modern idea. <laughs> that Augustine knew that the, you know, and respected the Gospels as authoritative and as inerrant. You can tell by the way he treated them. But he also said, he observed that you can give what a person the meaning of what he said without giving the exact words. So, you know, he's aware of this and uh, obviously had to deal with the differences then, you know, uh, the verbal differences uh, in the words of Christ as they appear in the different Gospels. So I would say, in effect, that opens the door in principle to there being a large amount of leeway anywhere from something very, very woodenly word to word over into something very paraphrastic but still giving the meaning, the gist, right? It's like the reporter and, the, you know, the, one of these politicos, think of Castro, right, who gives these two-hour speeches or whatever, right? <laughs> and, yeah, four, <laughs> all right? And then the reporter writes it up, all right? And, you know, it's a few lines maybe, he can still 
depending on how he writes it, he could still be said to be accurate. So the fact is that there's a lot of that there's a lot there's a whole spectrum of approaches. And indeed, among historians, secular historians of the time of the first century, you will find a bit of a spectrum. But people like Polybius, aware of the fact that it was necessary to have historical accuracy, and it's interesting, Eusebius already, that's about the third or fourth century, he's quoting verbatim with nary a change at all from some of his sources, and I know because I've compared them, right? So you can see it's just bang, no changes at all. But not everybody does that. So in effect, you're left wondering, but again, I'd say, you know, if we believe that the Gospels are inspired word of God, we believe that they give the meaning, you see, and also that they are inspired as they stand without our trying to reconstruct, as you'll see, Jeremias will try to reconstruct sometimes an underlying Aramaic and, you know, gets back into that. Even if you could, it would be no more inspired than what we've got. <laughs> so, because this is the voice of the risen Christ, you see, so you still got, you still got the same issues. Well, we will return to those a little bit as we get into some of the details of the parables, but... It would be considered inspired in the sense of, a, uh, of a fully the word of God, right, without error, although it wouldn't be canon in the sense of having been preserved for the use of the church. So you can, there's a larger category of special revelation, right, which would be fully the word of God and fully authoritative to those who receive it, but not necessarily in the, you know, in the sovereignty of God and his providence. Only a portion of that is preserved for all ages, and that's all right, too. Right, because that's under the control of God. I think not. <laughs> not unless the translators are on the same level of as uh, you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's true. I mean, I think that's you know some people might laugh at your question, but I think it's a good question. Once you say there can be two different layers of tradition, both of which are inspired, you see, right? The words of Jesus. Well, even the oral preaching of the apostle Peter. The, you know, the later tradition says that Mark based his gospel on that. Well, that, as apostolic, right, that would be fully, the word of God, fully authoritative, inspired in the technical sense. So you've got no less than three uh, uh, layers, or maybe four if Luke used Mark, right, <laughs> all of which are authoritative. So why can't that extend out? And I think that's the, you know, the sufficiency and completeness of Scripture question all over again. Right, that we, we have it given once for all, even though that once for all is a process itself when we look at it in detail, right, that you know, Luke went and did his research and so on. So, yeah. Anyway, let me go on. Uh, Roman number three, the parables, and oh, we've got this first sample. I'm going to do a sample parable and beg a lot of questions. <laughs> and then we'll stand back and we'll talk about principles, okay? Because that's, for, it may be more interesting and... Uh, than just leaping straight into principles without having a concrete instance. Note first the context of Luke 13, the, the, uh, really a pair of parables right here. The context is the discussion largely of issues of crisis that are set in motion by the coming of God's dominion. And it's linked, because it's in the second half of the Gospel of Luke, linked with the coming crisis at Jerusalem. Jesus is already traveling toward Jerusalem, although it's very much in the background at this point, yet it's not something to be ignored. So 
when Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God like? There's a background of, of the presence of the kingdom in the actions and in the events which are piling up on the way to Jerusalem. There are also some grammatical features to note which may easily be overemphasized, but nevertheless, uh, I'm going to mention them. One is that in verse uh, 18, you have an imperfect 1318, and the NIV really can't see it very well if you're just looking at the NIV. Elaganun, if I translate it very woodenly, then he was saying, why an imperfect? A little hard to say, but that and the presence of the un seem to tie it with the preceding material. The un certainly, then, and uh, you know, in the NIV translating it then, I just realized that could easily be taken as a temporal then in the sense of after this, the next event, right? But un is not that way. It's something of basically consequence you're looking at. Practically, it would overdo it to translate this way, but as a result or in response or something, it's linking it with something that went before. This is not the usual way, by the way, in which Luke will introduce a completely new episode. So it's interesting. The imperfect often indicates that the action in question is simultaneous with something else in the neighborhood. Well, it's not literally. You can't literally be simultaneously teaching one thing and doing another. Uh, he's just healed the woman there. But the effect of the imperfect, I think, is more subtly to put these things together, to link them to one another. So somehow, he is responding to this previous incident. What's the previous incident? It's the healing of the woman on the Sabbath. And they, the uh, ruler of the synagogue reacting with in, uh, indignantly that this has happened on the Sabbath and the opponents being humiliated, the people delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And somehow then this is related. How is it related? Well, you suspect that it is related to the developments in the kingdom. And this particular incident is one of many that is uh, an illustration of the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay, in addition to all that, Note that there are two parables and not one. And the two parables are similar enough that they invite some sort of cross-reflection. In other words, they'll help us each to interpret the other. The thing that's common to both of them appears to be primarily that there is growth and progress from a small beginning to a big ending. Both leaven and mustard seed share those features. And Mark and Matthew, now this is bringing in a synoptic parallel, which is dangerous. Mark and Matthew both explicitly mentioned the smallness of this mustard seed. So what do we do? Well, there's another thing to note in terms of detail before we wrestle with the whole thing. And that is uh, verse 19. Verse 19 almost surely contains... Uh, some kind of allusion to some Old Testament background. There are a number of possible Old Testament backgrounds here. Let me read them all 
And you'll begin to see the difficulties that this, or questions that this raises. What, what is Jesus saying in relation to these backgrounds? Or are the backgrounds really related? Uh, the first is Psalm 104, verse 12. The birds of the air nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. This is in the connection of his God creating um, various uh, elements of creation. And this one of the pictures is the creation of birds, but then the birds in the branches of trees. Uh, more tantalizing is Daniel 4.9 and 4.18. 4.9, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, this is the wrong verse. It's 4.12 in the English. It's 4.9 in the Aramaic. 4.12. Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, is, uh, has this dream, okay? And 4.12 he has seen a tree. Verse, oh, let's start with, well, we have to read the whole thing to see what's going on. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. This is verse 9. These are the visions I saw while lying on my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. So the enormous structure of the tree, and you might say, okay, well, it's just that you've got lots of birds, and it just shows how big it is, and that's a superficial connection. Uh, then 421, or 418 in the uh, Aramaic, we have, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. The tree here representing Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, shall I say? Maybe that's already begging a lot of questions, all right? But then here's the other one. Ezekiel 17, well, let's take Ezekiel 31.6 first. There's a couple of ones in Ezekiel. 31.6. All the birds of the air nested in its boughs. All the beasts of the field gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. What are we talking about here? Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Another kingdom 